When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I know it's not that exciting to see me. I, uh, I'm not that famous. This is my level of fame. If I'm walking down the street and somebody says, are you Judd Apatow? If I say no, they go, all right. Hello and welcome to The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast. And we have a very special episode for you today with Judd Apatow. Judd had us over to his office to record this episode, which was a lot of fun. He's hard at work editing his next movie, Staten Island, which is co-written by and stars SNL's Pete Davidson. It's his first movie as a director since 2015's Trainwreck, and as he tells me in this episode, it is really looking like it's going to be something special. Judd also has a new book out called It's Gary Shandling's Book. It's kind of an extension of the great HBO documentary The Zen Diaries of Gary Shandling that he put out last year. We got into so much really interesting territory in this episode, including Judd's first real response to the homophobic comments made about him by comedian Shane Gillis, who was hired and then quickly fired by SNL back in September. Also want to put in a little shameless plug here. I reference a profile of the comedian Gary Gullman that I recently wrote for The Daily Beast. Judd produced his HBO special, The Great Depression, which is amazing. There's a link to that story in the description for this episode as well. And as always, please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. And also, please follow the show on Instagram at LastLaughPod to see who's coming up as guests and see exclusive behind-the-scene photos from this episode and others. So now, let's go to my conversation with Judd Apatow. All right. Um, well, thanks for, thanks for having us at your office. Yes, this is it. Um, I, I've been reading a lot of profiles and interviews of you from over the years in preparation. And, How have I changed? And every single, one, <laughs> every single one starts with a description of your office as like a hoarder's uh, paradise. No longer. I just, uh, I just put everything in storage. Yeah, and I was going to say, it's very clean in here. No, I, I had to take everything out of the, the whole building to just freshen up the building and put in you know, new, new carpets and floors and I'm such a hoarder that I, I can't throw anything out, but now everything's just in storage and I'm trying to not bring it back Yeah, and just start hoarding again because it's nice <laughs> to have fresh space to hoard. Yeah. So does, it, does the new stuff just go straight to storage now? Is that no, the idea? Now that, no, I'll start filling up yeah, again. That's okay. fun. I mean, that's fun yeah. for a hoarder to go, wait a second, <laughs> I can start a new stack? Um, so we're, we're here in your office where I know you've been working on a post for the... Uh, Staten Island movie, Pete yes. Davidson's movie. So That's how's right. that going? It's going very well. I'm right in the middle of the process. So yeah. I just showed uh, the long, polished assemble, we call it, mm -hmm. which is where you just cut every scene, put it together, and yeah. see what it looks like. And I was very excited about it. And now I'm about to you know, show it to a, a real audience in a few mm -hmm. weeks uh, at the end of October. And then we do that... Through the end of January, we just keep showing real audiences and asking them what they understand, seeing if they they get it or not. It's a you know it's it's a you know it's more of a drama with comedy. Yeah. So 
it's generally scarier because, uh, as I always say, there is no noise for being emotionally involved. You know, <laughs> when you have a joke, you you hear the noise. You're like, I guess it worked because they made the noise. Mm-hmm. But you know, with something like this, there's no way to know. Yeah, is it more? It is more of a drama because I was wondering how much the you know the story of his dad, um, you know, who was a firefighter and died on 9/11. Does that play into it much, or is that is that uh, is that part of the film? Well, it's a fictionalized story, but it's mm-hmm. certainly inspired by the feelings that that brought up, mm-hmm. and it's definitely about grief and you know, how it affects you throughout mm-hmm. your life and 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 it's about like trying to get over over that and and move on yeah but it isn't the exact mm-hmm. uh, events of, of pete's life yeah it was it was good to see him back on uh, snl this past weekend i know he was he wasn't on the first two shows and i saw rumblings online like is he still on the show what's going on but he was back this past week so that was it was good to see him back on the show yeah he's i mean he's amazingly funny on the show and we we had a a great time the last few years uh you know working on on this script with the his writing partner dave cyrus Mm -hmm. and you know it's a real dream come true to get you know the chance to collaborate with pete i met pete when we were doing train wreck amy schumer said you know the guy you need to meet is pete davidson and at the time he was i think 19 yeah years old was he already on snl at that time or it was before okay so he was and just a- doing stand-up and around and just doing stand-up and amy was telling me about people i didn't know about and she said this is this is going to mm-hmm. be the guy and so we put him in the movie you know for a brief cameo mainly just so we could say we were this smart enough to put him in before <laughs> yeah. anybody else i like to like just do that. Yeah. It's like Richard Dreyfus in The Graduate. You're like, oh, wait, Richard mm-hmm. Dreyfus was the guy who answered the door? Yeah. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and we had fun. But at, at that time, I said to Pete, we should try to figure out a script. And, you know, we worked on one and, uh, and then we started another. And then finally, you know, we got to go ahead to make this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's been through a lot in his life. And, you know, even just in the past few years, he's become this like, sort of strange tabloid sensation as well, which I'm sure is not easy. Is it, how does he seem to you now? And is he, is he doing okay? Well, he was amazing to collaborate with, uh, you know, because the material is very emotional. I wasn't sure what I was about to put Pete through. Right. And he, he was you know, ridiculously professional and energetic. And, and how I know it went well is I'm sitting in editing and I'm watching all the takes and all the choices that Pete made, I, I know it went well because I'm just blown away by how creative he is and how brave he is to mm-hmm. dig deep into his psyche and his emotions and, and his past for both dramatic and comedic material. We had an, a, a great time making the movie mm-hmm. and he, he was solid as a rock. Yeah. You think people will be surprised to see him as a more dramatic actor after, you know, what his standup is so... I don't know if it's silly, but it, it's not, it's definitely not, uh, it doesn't get too serious. Well, he's always been very honest. One yeah. of the things about Pete is he has no time to cover. Mm-hmm. He's just going to tell you exactly what he's feeling and what he's going through. And that's what people love about him. Mm-hmm. They and- know that he's not making adjustments uh, to make all of this go down easier. Yeah. He has a very hilarious, dark sense of humor. And that's the filter through which he he sees the world. But he's also very courageous in 
talking about his feelings mm-hmm. and, and his struggles. Did that help as an actor, do you think? Uh, Absolutely. Being emotionally I, open like that? Oh, yeah. Because he would say things in the middle of a take mm-hmm. that I would never have thought of in a million years. Mm-hmm. And I knew it was correct because he thought of it. I mean, it's his, his character. Yeah. And sometimes... It was wild stuff, much darker than I ever would have thought to go. But if that's what occurred to him in the moment, then it must be correct because mm-hmm. it's coming from from his psyche. I keep saying it's a bit like a Nick Cage mm. type performance. There's something wonderfully deep and emotional and at times unhinged about yeah, it. It's very would, exciting to work That would be fascinating on. if he has, ends up having a career that, that models after Nick Cage. I mean, when you look back at everything Nick Cage has done throughout his life, uh, you know, he he really is one of the all-time greats. I remember when I first met Jim Carrey and and they had worked on Peggy Sue Got Married. Mm. And I would be around Nicolas Cage a few times. And to me, it was the most exciting thing ever. Because it was like, oh, this is, this is... You know, our Brando. I mean, Birdie (laughs) was a a movie that I was uh, really blown away by as a kid. This Alan Parker movie, I believe he was the Mm -hmm. director of Birdie. And he just had a bunch of those in quick succession. I remember going to see Vampire's Kiss. Yeah. And just thinking, this guy goes all the way. And I've always respected (laughs) that kind of person who just goes all the way. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about it's Gary Shandling's book, which I uh, got a copy of and, and read in basically one long sitting because it's just I thought it was really fascinating. And it's an extension of the the four hour documentary that yes. you made on HBO, um, the Zen Diaries of G- Gary Shandling. And so you made this documentary and it was very well received and it was great. And but you felt like there was more there was more there to do and in, in, in put in in book form. Well, on Twitter, a lot of people would you know, take photos of the screen mm-hmm. and post pictures of parts of Gary's journals, things that inspired them. So very early on, I thought, wow, it would be great if I could give people the time to go through it in the way that I went through it. Mm-hmm. So I had, you know, 30 years of journals, all of these photos, all of the, his joke writing books, these interviews, you know, when you make a documentary, sometimes you have to use two lines from Conan O'Brien to establish yeah. the sequence. But the truth is we talked for hours and with the book I could, you know, show long hunks of the conversation mm-hmm. and go even deeper into people's stories and descriptions of Gary. And then there was just all sorts of just weird funny stuff that I, that I found. And I, as a hoarder, I thought, <laughs> I would like this to exist in a form where people could look at it forever because his journey is so interesting as a, as a man and as a comedy mind. Yeah. I mean, it seems like it was just an enormous undertaking, though, to put it all together. And, and it's, you know, it's a big book. Um, yes, so it's a, it's a coffee table book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's perfect for for your Christmas needs. Exactly. It's a perfect book to give your nephew who wants to be an actor or a comedian. Or... <laughs> um, one thing that I didn't quite realize that I found out in the book was that you were kind of ended up being responsible for taking care of his material possessions in some way when he, after he died. How did that how did that fall on to you? Well, Gary had a few important people in his life and when he passed, you know, there's that terrible moment where everybody says, 
I guess we have to go to his house and mm-hmm. deal with his possessions. And I was just part of that of that group. And I was putting together the memorial. We knew that was important to mm-hmm. do. And as part of putting together the, the memorial, I decided to edit some short documentaries and joke montages mm-hmm. from, from Gary's life. And very quickly I realized there's an incredible story here and I should organize his stuff so that we'll be able to tell this in different forms. So in going through his stuff, I tried to fully catalog it, Mm -hmm. which is a lot of stuff. And what was interesting was Gary always seemed like someone who was living in the present, not attached to the past, but he didn't throw anything out. <laughs> yeah. So you, if you went to his house, you wouldn't see any of this stuff, but there was just like one little loft filled with boxes. Mm-hmm. And I realized, oh, everything is in there. He would just toss stuff in a box and there it would lay forever. I don't think he was ever going to go back through it. Yeah. Although he had talked about doing some sort of series or documentary series going through his journals and had even shot some test footage. So I felt like that was a sort of permission to do this work because Gary was interested Mm -hmm. in sharing some of his wisdom. What were some of the more surprising things? I mean, you knew him so well, but were there things that you found after he passed that you, that you were really surprised by? I think the thing I was most surprised by was in his journals, he was mainly trying to say kind things to himself. He was repeating different Buddhist ideas to reinforce the healthy part of his mind. Mm -hmm. My journal is just me whining like a bitch (laughs) for thousands of pages. Yeah. It doesn't really reflect how I feel. It's trying to get a voice out of my head. Mm -hmm. I think Gary always had that voice in his head and the journal was the voice responding to it Mm -hmm. and saying, this isn't important. You have to drop your ego, just focus on love and kindness. And it was his way of almost hypnotizing himself into absorbing these ideas into his psyche. So over 30 years of journals, there's very few pages which are rants against people. Mm -hmm. And I found that to be shocking and inspiring that, that he had this methodical approach to, to, to keeping sane. Did you see a big evolution in him over the years that you knew him? In terms of that stuff, in terms of uh, being able to accept things and being less angry and, and all that? There was an evolution because when I first met him, he was just in pure work mode. I, I met him when he was finishing up its Gary Shandling show. Mm-hmm. And I saw him, you know, at 10 in his creativity, the yeah. creation of the Larry Sanders show, working on the Larry Sanders show, hosting the Emmys a few times and the Grammys a few times and doing an hour special. But after that, he he seemed to downshift. He was interested in acting. I think he, the the writing is very stressful, and controlling every element of a show is draining. Mm-hmm. And he enjoyed getting acting work and not having to be responsible for every detail. And then, as he got older, he 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 had way more interest in being there for other people and mentoring other people. And there aren't many people like that in the business. There, there aren't that many people that you can call up and say, can you look at my cut? Who will actually spend the time deeply thinking about it and helping you? And he decided to do that for a lot of people in our community. And I thought, well, he's just a good guy. I didn't think it was a conscious choice. Right. I thought he, he's just, 
you know, nice man. And if I said, do you want to come to the table, read for the 40-year-old virgin? He's going as my friend. But in mm-hmm. his journals, he said he was making a choice to be a mentor. Yeah. And it wasn't something he said to anybody else. It was just in his, his private writings. He, I saw on one page, it just said, learn to grow old gracefully, learn to become a mentor gracefully. And, and that's a beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, especially for anyone who's, you know, knows him primarily through the Larry Sanders show. I mean, obviously that was a fictional character, but it was, had him in it. Yes. And it's so different from that character. You can't imagine that character really being a mentor to anybody. Well, that's what Gary always said when people thought he was Larry Sanders. He says, he would say, I'm not Larry Sanders because Larry Sanders couldn't write the Larry Sanders show. (laughs) Yeah. The Larry Sanders character was a part of his psyche, but it, it, it was a way of discussing our need to succeed to service our ego. So you have this man who's desperately trying to stay on top and be this guy. And then he has this voice in his head that keeps thinking, maybe this isn't right. So there's a a season where, you know, he moves to Montana. He tries to Mm -hmm. shut it down. He tries to find his spiritual core and if you look at other great pieces of television, you know that is an idea that you see. You know, this, what is the Sopranos? It's a guy that is obsessed with the ducks, and 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 you know he he just wants to be a normal person, but mm-hmm. he's just in this role, and he can't seem to find the strength to not be in the mob and murder people. Uh, but but the ducks always remind us that that's who he wants to be. Mm-hmm. And I think for Gary, that that's show business. Yeah. And I think a lot of us are trying to figure out how can we be creative and positive and put something good in the world and not get caught up in in this race to feed our egos and feel successful. And and because we're also insecure and, and it's hard to not want to do well to just service not letting that self-hatred get too large. Like, oh, I'll like myself more if I could win a People's Choice Award. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, so he, I mean, he was so instrumental in your career and you said you met him right sort of at the end of It's Gary Shandling's show. So what is the story of how you actually started working with him? I was doing stand-up at the Comedy Magic Club and my manager, Jimmy Miller, was there and Gary was performing and Jimmy just said, Gary, you should uh, let Jed write some jokes for you. And Gary seemed to have zero interest in this. (laughs) But months later, I got a call that Gary needed jokes for the Grammys. Yeah. And so it was right when the first Gulf War started. Mm -hmm. I was there with Dana Gould and Kevin Rooney, the Dallas Improv. And I just stayed up all night writing jokes for Gary. And I knew this was a moment for me. Mm -hmm. you, You need to over deliver. Yeah. And Gary like the jokes. I, I, I've said this before, but I feel like he liked my setups. Yeah. Because he didn't really know much about music. <laughs> so with every joke, I was explaining something he didn't know mm. about music. And then he would come up with a much better punchline, but I think he thought the dynamic worked. And then mm-hmm. he took me to New York to be there, you know, the night of the Grammys, to be on stage with him. I believe I was there with Jeff Cesario on, mm-hmm. on stage. John Marcus, who was a great writer from the Larry Sanders show was around and you know, it was, it was a magical experience. Jack Nicholson was on the show, Bono, Bob Dylan. Did that feel like sort of the biggest showbiz moment of your career up to that point? Oh, you know, by far. I, yeah. I couldn't believe yeah. it was happening. Cause you were really just doing stand up before 
that, right? Yeah, I mean, and writing, was, writing some. and I'd probably written a couple of jokes for Jeff Dunham and his old man puppet Walter. <laughs> I hadn't done that much. So this was yeah. a gigantic thing for me. And, you know, we're having dinners with Peter LaSalle from The Tonight Show. And then mm. we had a big meeting with Dennis Miller, where Dennis Miller was helping him write jokes for the Grammys. I think we had another one of those with Kevin Nealon. And I'm just a kid. I'm not even a very good comic at the time. Yeah. I, it's not, those weren't rooms I should have been in. Mm-hmm. But Gary and I had a good chemistry. And I feel like in a way, Gary liked just how I, I helped him organize his mind. Just, mm-hmm. I asked the right questions. I took good notes. And I think he enjoyed writing jokes with me. It didn't mean I was writing the good jokes. Yeah. But I think I, my vibe got him going. Yeah. And then you ended up uh, writing on Larry Sanders show. Yes. Um, and then also that was where you got your, your first directing credit, right? It was on Larry yes, Sanders. Absolutely. And I just rewatched the episode. It's the penultimate episode of the series, right? The the second to last one in the... It was in, during the last season. It yeah. was an episode about Scott Thompson's character yeah. suing the show for uh, being a hostile workplace because... They made gay jokes all the time. Mm. So it's fascinating that Gary was writing about these issues that are in the news today. You know, what is hostile? What is appropriate for a joke? Should we be more in tune with how people feel? And, and, you know, it's, it's a really interesting episode and also a challenging one to direct because it was the first time I ever directed and, and it was very deep material. There's also a great subplot with... Gary and Ileana Douglas, and and it was all about that Gary's character was worried that she wasn't going to do a good job as a guest on the show, and did he care more about that than his new relationship with her? I cannot tell you how good you did tonight. Um, I feel very awkward about something. Oh, you shouldn't. You were so fantastic, really. Everything you did was totally right. Really? Yeah. Okay, I, um, I like you a lot, and I get the feeling that if I wasn't a good guest tonight, that you wouldn't like me anymore. That is not true. Really? You spent more time working on my stupid ten-minute little spot than you have on our whole relationship. And you know what I think? I think it's more important to you whether or not I'm a good guest on your show. You know... I'm a fucking talk show host, okay? I'm all fucked up. It's a great episode and it yeah it is so prescient in a lot of ways that it you know is dealing with those issues that that are still feel very <clears throat> relevant um so yeah how did so when you when you got that opportunity to direct how did you how did you approach it and were you just learning from watching the other directors on that show and and how did you how did you kind of know what to do I had always thought about directing but I truly was terrified I yeah. went to USC film school and and I felt that everyone was much more talented than me, and it it hurt my uh, sense of security. At at the Ben Stiller show, Ben directed a lot, and mm-hmm. 
I was very green at the time and I didn't make a play to direct there. At some point I probably would have, but yeah. I still felt like I was in over my head. We didn't have a lot of uh, time on that show before. Yeah, yes, they we only did 13. <laughs> one didn't even air. So what was weird was Gary just walked in my office one day and said, you're doing the next one. Mm-hmm. And he hadn't done that. He, no writer had directed the yeah. show. And there certainly were much better writers than me working at that show. But almost in a in an intuitive way and, and I, I would say almost like a mystical way, you, Gary just had a sense that I should be a director. And before the show ended, he wanted to make sure I got a chance to do that. We never discussed it. I never asked him mm-hmm. to do it. And sometimes with Gary, I used to think, I think Gary's practicing being a dad with me. <laughs> I think that he, uh, as a guy who didn't have kids and wasn't married, was trying to see if he could do it. Yeah. I don't know if this was conscious or unconscious, but I always had that that feeling. And then later, when I was working on the documentary, I thought, I don't know if that's it or that Gary felt bad about how he was raised and how he was treated and engulfed by his mom and, 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 and all of the tension with her as being a neurotic, controlling person. That sometimes I thought with me and with other people that he mentored, Gary was trying to prove that it could have been done better. Mm-hmm. That you can give selflessly. You can be purely loving. You can you know, not try to control people. I was always surprised that Gary uh, was so happy when I got successful because as a neurotic person, sometimes people get weird when you start doing well. Jealous or, I mean... Anything, just that there's some energy around it. And he was so purely thrilled when after many decades, my career finally really took (laughs) off. Uh, It it was, you know, a real gift that... It, that he was so there for me and would go to every table read and read every script and, and, and watch every cut and, and give notes. And it did feel very fatherly. But mm-hmm. recently I thought that's what, how he wished someone treated him. He was mm-hmm. trying to treat me and others the way he thought a parent should treat their kid. Yeah. His experience with you didn't convince him that he wanted to be a father, though, maybe. I don't know. I, I you know, I think that's one of the mysteries yeah. with Gary. You know, you know, some people, you know, thought that losing his brother to cystic fibrosis might have had some uh, effect on his feelings about being a parent yeah, or was he afraid that he had the yeah. gene? Um, but maybe that's not true at all. You know, he, you know, I think he, he could have just been exhausted from how he was parented and, and just wanted the ability to have his own space and his own free time and the idea of not being able to do that might mm-hmm. have been something that he was concerned about. He was always amazing with kids. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, you know, now that I'm older, I'm in my 50s, you, you see certain people who had kids and certain people didn't have kids. But, they, you know, there are a lot of people, they give so much to the world and to young people in a different way that you realize, you know, it's it's not essential that everyone in the world has that experience because they are having it in a in a different way. Yeah. Um, you, you said that he was really happy for your success, but I think a, a big theme of the book and the documentary and his life is that success doesn't necessarily equal happiness and that they're kind of, you have to separate them. 
Is that something, is that a, a message that you took from him? And how do you kind of think about that now? I think Gary always felt like just do good work and everything will be fine. Mm-hmm. So Gary never talked about success. Yeah. He, th- those discussions never happened. It was always, are you going there? Are you going deep? Are you mm-hmm. going to your core? Are you proud of the work you're doing? Are you making choices based on doing the best possible creative work? That's what Gary cared about. And that, that was success mm-hmm. to Gary. Well, how do you think about it? I, I, you know, I, I have to say this. I'm proud of my IMDB. I haven't done things to make money. I have done things because I was passionate about an idea or a person to collaborate with. And that's the only thing that's ever guided me. Sometimes things are very successful. Sometimes things disappear quickly and are forgotten. But I really always follow my passion and my heart. So when I look at everything I've done, I think I loved every one of those experiences, even the, the ones that melted down and didn't go well. You know, I, 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 I did things for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think it, that's also a theme of uh, funny people, too, is that character, um, Adam Sandler's character, has all this success and isn't happy. So is that did that come from, you know, your own life or conversations with him or this sort of where, where does that um, where does that idea come from and why did you want to tell that story? I think there's a moment when your your dreams come true and you have to admit that. Oh, my God, my dreams came true. I got to make a movie. Mm-hmm. I got to do stand up. I was on The Tonight Show. You know, there are certain boxes that you check off and you cannot believe it happened. We all worked so hard for that to happen. But at the same time, you get an experience, which is, it doesn't make you happy. It is somewhat spiritually bankrupt if you Mm -hmm. don't approach it in the right way. And in a lot of ways, it could lead to great depression. Because Mm -hmm. in your mind, you trick yourself into thinking, if these things happen, I will feel whole, I will be healed, Mm -hmm. and I will be happy. And I think funny people is an expression of the idea that that's not true at all. Yeah. And if, if you are in it, because on some psychological level, you think it'll make you feel better as a person, you are in for a world of hurt. And all of show business and music is littered with people who thought their success would make them happy in it. And and finding out that it doesn't destroys people. Because then they don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And that's what's inspiring about Gary, which is I'm sure he had that experience. And at some point, he he just thought, oh, I guess I should just give. Mm And even if he was in pain and neurotic, it's not like he got all zenned out. Yeah. He just, he did have a goal and a sense of what he should be thinking about and trying to do. And I think that's the best any of us can do. So, you know, a movie like Funny People is an acknowledgement that if all you do is chase the next hit movie and you don't focus on being there for other people and developing friendships and relationships, you're going to wind up alone in a house, miserable and sad. Coming up, Judd looks back at how he got his start in stand-up comedy as a teenager and why he decided to finally return to it over the past few years. The Last Laugh is brought to you by Skillshare. Skillshare is an online learning community with thousands of amazing classes covering dozens of creative and entrepreneurial skills. You can take classes in everything from photography and creative writing to design, productivity, and more. 
So whether you're returning to a longtime passion project, challenging yourself to get outside your comfort zone, or simply exploring something new, Skillshare has classes for you. I am always trying to learn new things in my work, like, for instance, how to make a podcast, which I did not know how to do before we started this show and think I'm getting a little better at with each episode, but you can let me know what you think about that. If you want to learn how to make a podcast, Skillshare has a class for that. It's called How to Make a Podcast, Plan, Record, and Launch with Success. If you like The Last Laugh, you might also be interested in checking out some of their other classes that are all about comedy, including ones about how to become a comedy writer or doing stand-up for the first time. They also have a class taught by comedian Matt Belisai called Going Viral, Write, Film, and Make Content People Share. Join the millions of students already learning on Skillshare today with a special offer just for listeners of this show. Get two months of Skillshare for free. That's right, Skillshare is offering the Last Laugh listeners two months of unlimited access to thousands of classes for free. To sign up, go to Skillshare.com slash laugh. Again, go to Skillshare.com slash laugh to start your two months now. That's Skillshare.com slash laugh. So I want to talk about your experience with uh, stand-up as well. Um, what was what what was sort of the first time that you got on stage to do stand-up, um, and what what do you remember from that? The first time I I got up on stage, I was in high school. I think it was May of nineteen eighty-five, and I I did some open mic nights at Chuckles, Miniola, and Governors in Levittown, and the East Side Comedy Club, and Huntington. I wanted to do it since I was tiny, since mm-hmm. I was 10. And I finally worked up the courage to do it. It's amazing that I did because I was so terrible. There's no real <laughs> way to describe how bad I was, but I wanted it so much. And so I finally got up on stage. And then after doing it for a few months and all summer, at Eastside Comedy Club, they say, hey, do you want to host the next open mic night. So after three or four months, they offered me 50 bucks to be the MC. Was so that a, was that a vote of confidence? I it was, mean, it was a giant vote of confidence to me. And then I had to leave to go to school. I was moving to California to go to USC. Oh, yeah. And I was so bummed that on some level I had just gotten in mm-hmm. at Eastside Comedy Club. I could have been a host. Like my whole standup thing could have started. Yeah. But I, I went to go study screenwriting, which I guess was uh, the, the, the right thing to do. But at the time, it was a huge bummer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I moved to L.A. and you know, I just would get in the car and go to you know, the Laugh Stop and Claremont. There were, there were certain clubs that were about an hour away. And there wouldn't, there wouldn't be as many people at their open mic. So you might you know, have 11 people on the show instead of 25 people. On yeah. The show. You had more, you had more chance of getting on there than the clubs in LA. Yeah. And I would get more time. You, mm-hmm. you might get seven minutes instead of four minutes. Mm-hmm. And so I was just in that car every night. I would, you know, the, the people I was starting with, uh, you know, it was like Doug Benson and Andy Kindler. Mm-hmm. We were all beginning at the same time running around doing these mm-hmm. open mics. And at the same time you're studying screenwriting. So how do you balance those two things? Are you much more focused on one than the other? I had no interest in screenwriting. At the time. <laughs> I just needed a major that was as close to stand up or comedy right. as I could get. Yeah. So I picked screenwriting. But at the time, that's not where my head was at. Mm-hmm. It was. And, and in fact, I look back on it and I feel bad because I, I should have 
paid more attention at school. <laughs> I only went for a year and a half. I ran out of money. and But I was also excited to get into the stand-up mm-hmm. world. I started booking some colleges. And I and Sammy Shore started a club in Marina Del Rey. And you know, he would give me literally $40 a week to, mm-hmm. to book this, this club. But yeah. he would let me go on. Yeah. And, and that's where I got most of my stage time to start was mm-hmm. at Sammy's club. And then the Comedy Magic Club let me MC, and then finally I got, I got accepted at the Improv. And when when did you start to feel like okay, I <clears throat> I feel like I'm getting good at this? I don't know if I ever felt like I was getting that good at it. Yeah. I started getting some TV spots. Dennis Miller had a talk show. I I, I was on the HBO Young Comedian special, but I never felt like I was on fire with it. And I'll tell you, my friend says to me, he goes, I think you should go out with a girl who's been hurt. This way she'll really appreciate you. <laughs> Great. This way now, all of a sudden, I'm looking for a wounded animal at this point, you know? <laughs> Suddenly, I'm a social coyote, and I'm just thinning out the herd, you know? <laughs> it's confidence, because guys are so confident, you know? Guys will see, like, Madonna on TV and go, oh, yeah, I'd teach her a thing or two. <laughs> Man, I see Madonna, I get scared, you know? Seriously, I don't think I can handle that. I'd have to start out with one of those Facts of Life girls and work my way up to Madonna, you know? Jeez. I'd be sitting at home going, you know, for me, it'd be like Natalie, Mrs. Garrett, then Madonna, you know? Then I'd get ready. Trudy scares me. My friend's like, Madonna, I'd do her in a minute. Like, yeah, me too, that's the problem, I think. Every once in a while, you drive down to the Irvine Improv and have a great night. Mm-hmm. But also, the headliners were, were tremendous back then. So you'd open up for Rich Scheidner, or Larry Miller, or Paula Poundstone at the Improvs around the country. And they were just beasts. They were yeah. so funny. So you're, you're constantly comparing yourself to them. And, and... I knew I had so far to go yeah. to be at that level. Now a lot of stand-up, you know, is these you know fifteen minute spots? Mm-hmm. But when you're on the road and you're opening or middling for Dennis Miller, you you know and he's at doing the time it's like opening or, yeah. for Led Zeppelin or something. Yeah. They're just murdering so hard and their sets are so fantastic. Mm-hmm. So I never felt like I am ready for. It. Mm-hmm. I, I was just you know getting by. And was there a certain point where you kind of made the decision to? stop doing stand-up so that you could focus on writing and on, uh, I guess, first writing and then directing? Well, I just, you know, was trying to pay my bills by writing jokes. Mm-hmm. For other comedians. For other comedians, I wasn't making that much as a stand-up. So I was making, I don't know, 600 or $800 a week writing jokes for Roseanne mm-hmm. while I was a struggling stand-up, yeah. making maybe 200 or $250 a week doing stand-up at the improv. But you know, with both, I started making, oh, I'm making like $1,000 a week or 1200 bucks a week because I was also working at Comic Relief, mm-hmm. raising money for the homeless. So that was my nut. You know, uh, I had a $900 a month apartment I shared mm-hmm. with Adam Sandler. Yeah. And I had all these jobs. And then every once in a while, someone would get an HBO special and they would throw me a credit. And usually the credit was a co-producer credit. Mm-hmm. So I had that with Roseanne and with Tom Arnold and some other people. And then I met Ben Stiller. Now, I had all these credits. And they, 
it made it seem like I had done a lot of producing, but really I'd just been writing jokes for the most part. But they just call it being a co-producer. Like, look, Jed's got all these credits on all these cool things. But most of it wasn't hard production. A little mm-hmm. bit on the Tom Arnold Naked Truth specials. So then when Ben asked me to create the show with him, suddenly I was running the show with Ben with no experience, and I was making, you know, for one episode what would be a half a year's work, Mm -hmm. like playing the improvs around the country. And I just thought, I think the universe doesn't want me to do (laughs) stand-up because the the universe keeps giving me money to not do stand-up. Yeah. And I was also so busy with Ben, I was exhausted. Mm -hmm. And then when it ended, I got offered a job at the Larry Sanders Show and on The Critic. And they were, you know, those were nighttime jobs. You'd come in at 10 in the morning, but usually be there until... 10 or midnight yeah. so I couldn't schedule stand up mm-hmm. and so finally I just I just gave in to the idea that I couldn't do it yeah it's like, it's like I talked to uh, Anthony Jeselnik on this show about um, his he worked on Jimmy Fallon's show for a year the first year of uh, Jimmy Fa- late night with Jimmy Fallon yeah. and yeah he said that it, he couldn't be as good of a stand-up as he wanted to be doing that job. You know, he, he would try to do both, but after a year, he was like, I just have to do stand-up. Yeah, it, it didn't work. And, and it was a little bit of a bummer because I was just getting in mm-hmm. uh, at all the fun places to perform. <laughs> yeah. And looking back, it's the best thing that ever happened that I, that I, <laughs> I stopped. I don't think the mm-hmm. world missed out on anything. Yeah. You know, no one missed out on Judd's stand up in his early 20s (laughs) because you have nothing to say. You just don't have much to say. And there were young comedians who did have things to say. Mm. Goldthwaite was so hysterical as a really young guy. Uh, And, you know, Sandler and Spade and Schneider Mm -hmm. were doing amazing work then. Janine Garofalo, so funny in in her early 20s. But I always felt like I needed to be older to do it well and now you are older and you're doing it again yes. uh so over the past few years you've really gotten back to doing stand-up so i know you you that kind of started during train wreck um and with you know getting up at night after shooting with yes. amy schumer on train wreck um was it was it scary to get back on stage did you have was it did it feel like doing it again did it feel like it felt when you started doing it or did it feel different i think i i was a lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Dancing around doing it for a while. So Mm -hmm. in 2008, when we were working on Funny People, I would get up and do jokes for Adam's character. So I would write mm-hmm. jokes for Adam's character and and find opportunities to perform them to see if they were good for the movie. And then I used to go to UCB and do these special, these shows called uh, How to Make Thousands Writing Screenplays. Mm-hmm. And it was just me teaching screenwriting, but it was all fake. Mm-hmm. So I would call up 
Adam McKay, and he and one time he pretended that he was Sid Field, the guy who wrote How to Write a Screenplay, <laughs> and it was just an opportunity for him to do this funny Sid Field character. Yeah. Uh, Sid is no longer with us, so he, he was doing, uh, you know, advice for screenwriters, and then I would bring people on stage and take pitches, mm-hmm. and and it, just for comedy's sake, yeah. I'd say who in the crowd is working on a screenplay, and I would help them work through their idea. Yeah. And then it, be, it becomes kind of an improv exercise, I guess. Yes. for you. And I started enjoying doing those, mm-hmm. but I, I I was scared to do stand up again. I have two kids; it's hard to just leave the house. But when I was working on Trainwreck, I just I think I just got jealous of how much fun Amy seemed to be having yeah. traveling the country doing stand-up. And then when we were in New York and we'd go to the comedy cellar and I'd just watch her, I, I said, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna go up one night just to make you laugh. And she just thought I would bomb terribly. And I thought I would bomb terribly, but it would make her and her sister Kim laugh. <laughs> and I said to her, send me ideas, you know, for subject matter. And so for a week or two, they would say, why don't you talk about this with your kids? Why don't you talk about that? And so I, I sat down and wrote some jokes and did a set. And it happened to go well. And afterwards, the club said, hey, if you ever want to get up, we'll put you up. And I was about to sh- be in New York for four months. Mm-hmm. This is the Comedy Cellar? Yeah. yeah. And so at the time, I didn't realize how hard it was to get into the Comedy Cellar. Mm-hmm. And I just took full advantage of it. I, I couldn't <laughs> believe they would let me go up. So... Uh, you know, I'm glad I didn't realize how weak I probably was because, you know, everybody's watching you, mm-hmm. everyone you respect. Yeah. And I'm sure some of it was was pathetic. Uh, but I, I worked hard to, you know, get the muscle back. Was there a bit that, that you that felt like the first bit in this more recent time of doing stand-up that really was clicking and working in a way that, that was exciting? It's not a good bit, but it was something I had leaned on, which is I had this true story about sitting down with an actor... And it's a really famous actor. And in the middle of this long meeting, he has a booger (laughs) hanging out of his nose, but like really hanging out of his nose. And it was just all about me trying to figure out if I should tell him or not. And that, um, that he went to the bathroom and I was like, thank God he's going to go to the bathroom. He's going to see it in the mirror. And then he's going to be embarrassed. He's going to realize I dominated him. (laughs) And then, uh, he'll get rid of it, and we can get back to uh, talking about this project, which will never happen. And then he comes back, and the booger is still there. <laughs> he didn't, and he the didn't joke, glance in the mirror. The joke was that I said, did he not see it? And I, and, I, and I thought, you know, he probably did see it and just thought, that son of a bitch didn't tell me. I'm going to leave it in just to dominate <laughs> him. And it was just this really stupid story. Um And I said, and, you know, that person, I don't want to tell you who it was because I don't want to embarrass them, but they were one of the people who played Batman. (laughs) (laughs) And I I would talk to the crowd as they tried to figure out which Which Batman Batman it was. (laughs) And it was just a stupid story, but it was enough to take a few minutes Mm -hmm. and uh, and get through those early sets. Yeah, yeah. I remember seeing you do uh, the the bit about Cosby getting the paper from the driveway yes, a few times. Yes. That that seemed like it did pretty well. Yes, uh, yeah, I had a bit about uh, Cosby trying to hide the paper from mm-hmm. Camille, yeah. so she wouldn't find out. <laughs> um, and 
I wound up doing that on the Tonight Show. Yeah, yeah. They they asked me if I wanted to do stand up, and I always felt like they asked me just as a goof because if mm-hmm. I bombed, it would probably be just as amusing. Yeah, as, as if I did well. So no one at the show even asked me what I was going to say. <laughs> Usually they really grind the comedians to work on the set. They're just like, yeah, no, just do it. Just do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And I had been doing this Cosby bit, but I was not going to do it on the Tonight Show because mm-hmm. it was a very dark, yeah, piece of comedy. And so I would run my set at the cellar. And then after that, I would do other material. And one of the bits was this Cosby bit. And then every comedian was like, you have to do that on The mm-hmm. Tonight Show. And I, I kept saying, you can't, you can't do that on The Tonight Show. And then I could tell that like, that was the move to make, mm-hmm. which was scary. Yeah. And then I wound up uh, doing it. And luckily, it went well. Uh, Cosby is still out on the road. Isn't that weird? He's like doing stand-up. What do you think his act is like? Do you think he's still talking about it? You think he like says like, you ever been in trouble with the wife? (laughs) (laughs) You ever like get into the doghouse with the wife? You're in the doghouse with the wife because of something that you did? Like the other day, there was something about reading the paper, and uh, I didn't want my wife to read the paper. So I got up at five in the morning, and I snuck out to the driveway to get the paper, and I hid the paper, and the next day I got up and I hid the paper, and then the next day I forgot to get the paper. And my wife, she said to me, what is this in the paper about the raping and the drugging and the women? And I said, do you like your life? So the other, uh, the other Gary that I want to talk to you about mm. a little bit is Gary Gullman. Yes. Uh, because I just uh, did a big profile on him for his new special, mm. The Great Depression, which I absolutely loved. And I know you produced that and worked with him. And I got to see you guys at uh, Largo not too long ago at that event, which was really fun um, with Maria Bamford yes. and Patton Oswalt. And Gary is so, I mean, I was, I was amazed after watching the special like two days before and then watching him do like nearly an entirely different hour at, at Largo was pretty cool. Um, he's, he's just unbelievable. But, um, why was, why, what, what was it about him that, that made you want to work with him? I mean, he, I mean, he's so funny and he's such a nice guy and I had just worked a little bit on the Jerry Seinfeld special mm-hmm. and that was directed by Michael Bonfiglio who produced the Gary Shanling documentary and we had co-directed a documentary about the Avett brothers and a 30 for 30 about mm-hmm. Dwight Gooden and Daryl Strawberry. And Mike was the one who you know, got really passionate about Gary and he directed the special and worked with Gary on the set for you know six, eight months. Mm-hmm. And they told me, you know, about what he was trying to do, uh, which was talk, you know, which was just talking about his depression on stage was, you know, was there a way to, to do that? My main notes throughout the process were very simple. I just thought you could really go into this for much longer. Mm -hmm. That was HBO's note when they signed him up to do the special. They, they just said it's very powerful and really funny. It doesn't have to be 15 minutes at the end of your set. Yeah, and Gary and and Mike Bonfiglio, you know, worked on that 
set in a way that I think most stand-ups don't. You, you rarely have other creative people asking you hard questions and mm-hmm. helping you craft a storyline yeah. to your set. And w- we had done something similar uh, was with Chris Gethard with his mm-hmm. special uh, career suicide, which Michael also directed. You know, in addition to just helping him, you know, get it made, you know, we were there for him to to kick around some of the ideas he was trying to craft, and and we encouraged Chris to do Q and As after he would do sets because I felt like people had a lot of questions, and it would be interesting to know what people thought he left out. Mm-hmm. What would the follow up questions yeah. be? What do they want to know more about? Yeah, and, and he went to Edinburgh and and, mm-hmm. and overseas, so. You know, that's just a type of work that I, I really enjoy as a fan of comedy and also as a fan of, of people who I think deserve more exposure, you know, than they're currently getting. Mm-hmm. Gary Goleman crushed that special yeah. at this moment. And one thing I can provide is, you know, the ability to get access to some of those executives to tell them about something special that's mm-hmm. happening in comedy. Yeah. And, and it's very powerful for people because what he's talking about is, how easy it is to not reach out for help mm-hmm. and that a lot of people have shame about you know going to doctors going to a facility you know needing medication and and we learned that when we did the Chris Gethard special that people would say thank god you're talking about this because no one talks about it and they feel very alone in it which i think makes people mm-hmm. more depressed that you know the more we talk about it it's like if you have a panic attack if you turn to the person next to you and say, I'm having a panic attack right now, it almost instantly goes away. Yeah, yeah. There's something that's very isolating about mm-hmm. anxiety and depression. So it's very gratifying to see the reaction to Gary's yeah. work. So one thing that I talked to Gary about um, is we were talking about you know uh, Chris Gethard's special and you and how uh, you became part of the focus of this whole uh, controversy over Shane Gillis, who mm-hmm. SNL hired. And then one of the things that came out was this rant that he did, uh, calling you and, and Chris Gethard homophobic slurs. And it was pretty mm-hmm. ugly. Um, I haven't heard you talk about this at all. So I was curious what you made of that when you, how did you hear about it? And, and what did you think when you, when you heard that? I generally just tried to sit it out. I, 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 you know, I, there's, there's such a debate happening about what's appropriate and what's inappropriate mm-hmm. in comedy. And I, I feel bad for everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I really do. I feel like comedians gener- generally have very good intentions. Mm-hmm. And even the ones who are doing things that people are debating, they really are trying to make people happy and make a living. And there's just so much pain around these issues. And it's made me sad to see divisions build up yeah. in the comedy world there's, over all of this. Yeah, there's like articles about comedy civil war and these, you know, two sides, which I think is a little overblown. But I think there are people that feel like their livelihoods are at stake mm-hmm. and, and they feel in danger when they do their sets. And there's other people that feel like no one's listening and that it's not that hard to... Be aware of what you're saying on stage mm-hmm. and the effect of it. Yeah. And I think some people feel like they can't speak up when they're offended or hurt or have to share s- stages with certain people. 
So I, I understand it from both sides. So my heart is just a little broken about the fissure mm-hmm. that's happening. And, and I have a, a great compassion for both sides. So when this came up, I just made a choice to mainly sit it out. Mm-hmm. It also felt like such a such a storm was happening. It certainly didn't need my commentary about it. I also don't know the man. I don't know his level of sincerity. Mm-hmm. I don't know, you know, he said he was you know, doing a character. I don't, you know, I don't know. I, I don't have the information right. because he's new to me to have an opinion about what he's mm-hmm. going for yeah. with any of his work. Uh, so I felt uneducated about it. Did you feel like SNL made the right decision to rescind his offer? I'm, I'm I, I still don't really have a passionate mm-hmm. opinion about it. Okay. I, I generally think that any employer has the has the the right to decide who they want in their workspace. Mm-hmm. A lot of people talk about it just as cancel culture. Yeah. But I'm not in those meetings when they talk to him to get a sense of who he is and what he's going for. And so I can't really speak to did they cave to pressure or make a choice based on their own morals and values. Yeah. And I, you have to imagine that that some of the other cast members on the show were, would have been potentially uncomfortable with him after all that. It's hard to know. It really depends yeah. on who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I don't know who he is, but yeah. I I know that we all have to make choices about mm-hmm. who we want to share space with. Yeah. If I'm assembling a writer's room, I'm very aware that I want everyone in that room to get along and like each mm-hmm. other and feel safe to split open their unconscious. Mm-hmm. I think that one of the things that's happened in comedy is that in a writer's room, you are usually told that you're allowed to just let it spill because we're trying to see what bubbles up. And part of that process mm-hmm. is to just babble and let yeah. things fly. And generally, a writer's room for a sitcom or single camera comedy show is a rough space. Yeah, It is not for the faint of heart or the <laughs> thin skinned. And I think people are debating how far should that go. Mm-hmm. But a lot of comedians want the ability to do that on stage in front of paying customers. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't have a strong opinion about whether they should be allowed to do that or not. Right. For the most part, they should, of course, they should be allowed yeah. to do that. But I think that's what's happening is they do want to let it spill off the top of their head mm-hmm. on stage. They're not bringing crafted material you know, to the stage mm-hmm. and getting in trouble for it. Usually it's part of... Uh, working things out and improvising things. And comedians are very worried that they're not going to be allowed to do that. Or if they do do that and make a technical mistake, Mm -hmm. that they're in trouble. And I I totally understand what they're talking about. But I also feel like I'm not sure who's getting in trouble. Yeah. I I, I don't know what the list is Uh of people who are getting in trouble that has led to such a level of fear. Mm-hmm. Most of the people who are talking about their fear are doing great. Yeah, I mean, Dave Chappelle gets brought up a lot, and he's obviously doing quite well and doesn't seem to be in danger of being canceled anytime soon. It's hard to know what, you know, what the truth of that is. Yeah. But that's part of 
the debate. Mm-hmm. I, 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 if you talk to comedians, they say it is very difficult. If you go on the road, if you, you know, a lot of people are yelling in the crowd. It's, you know, Filming, very, yeah. Very difficult to, you know, to perform at colleges. Yes, there, and there are a lot of people looking for you to slip up or right. looking to be offended by something mm-hmm. that you've said. Yeah. And, and that's, you know, a hard place to be if you have the type of act that wants to kick around more difficult ideas, that wants to ruffle feathers, that wants to examine things that people have trouble talking about and getting along. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you obviously weighed in on the Louis C.K.'s jokes about the Parkland kids, and we don't need to rehash all of that. But I know you were, besides thinking that those jokes were maybe not, you know, they, I think you called it hacky, unfunny, and shallow. Um, the I feel like the bigger critique of him maybe is that he has not used the opportunity so far to really address what went down with him. And um, I was curious what you thought about that, his approach to it versus what we saw from Aziz Ansari, who's someone who you've worked with, who came back and did a special and really did talk about this stuff. Um, he didn't really, he made a couple jokes about it, talked about it seriously some. So how did you, how do you kind of compare those two approaches to how, how do you use your, your platform to address these, these things? Well, I, you know, you know, when the movie trainer came out, someone went into a movie theater and killed two women in the audience. Yeah. So I'm very sensitive to that subject. Mm-hmm. Guns and yeah. I don't, I don't, uh, think that people should talk about it recklessly. Right. They are allowed to, mm-hmm. and I don't think anybody should be boycotted or not be allowed to work at a club if they make the, a terrible joke about it. Yeah. I understand that. I did feel like his jokes were especially offensive because those are underage kids mm-hmm. and they have suffered in a way that no one can ever understand. And there's a, you know, there's a real risk of... Uh, them losing their lives to suicide. There's, there's been a lot of people yeah. who have not been able to heal. Mm-hmm. And so piling on and making them, you know, the object of ridicule felt so off. Yeah. Now that being said, I, I'm all for Louis working on his act. And mm-hmm. I don't think, he, you know, he, he should be uh, denied the ability to, to do what he does and he'll figure out his path in deciding what, the next stage of his creative life is. But I do think comedians should be, should be criticized. Right. I, I do think that it's an art form. Mm-hmm. And a lot of comedians say, well, I'm not done yet. I'm not done. Criticize yeah. me when I have the finished set. Mm-hmm. I don't know. People are paying money. So yeah. if someone paid money, they're allowed to have an opinion on what they mm-hmm. just saw. Yeah. And I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing if I make a movie, people are allowed to trash it. Mm-hmm. I put it out, people can trash it. If I go on stage, you know, at, at the improv, someone could write a blog about what they thought about what I said. That's part of what we do. Mm-hmm. And it's a little disingenuous to think that comedians who criticize everybody <laughs> right. should not be the subject of criticism. Mm, yeah. And I want comedians to be kind-hearted and I'd like comedians to s- stand for something good mm-hmm. generally, 
But some comedy is just meant to be dark and awful, and some people really enjoy that. They like when people just say the worst thing you ever could say. And mm-hmm. there's, I understand there's a release to that, and I enjoy that. Yeah. Uh, but I felt like with the Parkland kids, they're real. Mm-hmm. We know their names. Yeah. And yes, you could do it. You're allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. But we're allowed to say, I-, I don't like that you did it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I, I appreciate what Aziz did. And I think a lot of us feel like we wish Louis said that on day one. Mm-hmm. And why wouldn't you say it? Yeah. Why wouldn't you say, I, I, I hope people feel better. I ho- I, I'm trying to learn. I hope mm-hmm. something good comes from this. I don't want people to be in pain. I, I, it seems like the natural thing. Yeah, he's really he's really seems to have gone hard in the other direction to the point of like emulating some alt right stuff, which has uh, surprised me. I don't know what he's yeah. thinking, but also he's made a point of not really telling people what he's thinking. Yeah, and when he doesn't, it creates this vacuum, and then everyone has to debate it to try mm-hmm. to figure out what yeah. he's thinking. Uh, so. That's, I think, why there's so much debate, because he's not saying, this is what I took from this experience. Mm-hmm. And you know what? He will. Mm-hmm. One day we'll, we'll hear it on stage or in an interview or somewhere. Yeah. I'm sure, I'm I, sure I hope happen. that we do, yeah. Coming up, Judd reveals the funniest person he's ever worked with. So before we do wrap up, there's a, a bit of a speed round that I want to go through some, okay. of, your, some of your IMDb uh, credits and see if there's a, a story or memory that kind of pops out to you about your time on that. And we've talked about uh, a lot of the stuff already, but we haven't really talked about Freaks and Geeks, which just had mm-hmm. its 20th anniversary yes. and is one of my favorite shows of all time. Um, so 20 years later, when you think about that show, how do you, how do you think about it? Is there a, a memory or, or story that, that comes to mind? I don't really think about it in terms of one memory or one story. I'm just very proud of everybody. Mm-hmm. I think that they all continue to do amazing work, and it's mm-hmm. shocking how many people have become directors and writers. So mm-hmm. there's almost a you know a, you know a giant web of material that came from everyone after the show. Mm-hmm. If you looked at just the body of work of everyone yeah. that touched Freaks and Geeks, it's just a lot of great. Stuff and also everyone is really nice and and uh, it's a it's a, just a great crew of of people. You know, John yeah. Daly wrote Spider Man. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm sure you were you were crushed at the time when it got canceled after the first season. Is there any part of you that now thinks that was a blessing in disguise because you kind of have this one perfect season of the show and you didn't get a chance to uh, <laughs> to overstay its welcome? I do think that I, I I you know when you do a TV show you usually have a lot of ideas. Mm-hmm. So if we're working on Crashing with Pete Holmes. We have tons of ideas for years, and we'll think maybe we should do that as a fourth season arc. Mm-hmm. But when you are pretty sure you're going to get canceled at any second, you just go right to all your A stuff and mm-hmm. see if you can get it done before the guillotine comes down. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why this show is good. It's very compressed. It, it was made with the the fear of it ending every single day. Mm-hmm. Forty-year-old uh, virgin, uh, your first film as a director. What what comes to mind when you when you think about that experience now? There's always a moment where you're so scared that you won't be allowed to make another one that you go for it really hard. Mm-hmm. That was the first time I directed a movie, and the whole time I thought. If this goes badly, there will not be a second Judd movie. And Carell thought the same thing. He used to say, I'm being really nice to our casting director, so if this bombs, she'll still put me in stuff. And as a result, we just worked so 
hard. We improvised so much material. We overwrote and we put everyone in it that we thought was riotously funny. And, mm-hmm. and all the parts, if you watch that movie, it's, it's, yeah. you know, Kat Dennings is in that movie and Elizabeth Banks and, and Jane Lynch, mm-hmm. uh, Romney Malco, uh, in addition to you Mindy know, Kaling, Seth yeah. and Mindy Kaling and Paul Rudd and Leslie. Uh, so there was a, a ton of great comic vibe mm-hmm. when we were doing it. And, and it's all because Steve had this amazingly simple idea mm-hmm. of the 40 year old virgin. And we just said, what if you made this movie and you totally respected this character and you tried to handle it in a thoughtful, dramatic way? I think it would become much more mm-hmm. likable and funnier. And I think that approach surprised people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Anchorman was uh, your first movie with Will Ferrell, right? Yes. Um, so, is there is there are there any Will Ferrell stories that jump to mind? Well, the first thing I shot with Will was an episode of Undeclared. Oh yeah, our show about college, and Will played a guy who would write your term paper for fifty mm-hmm. bucks. <laughs> and this was in two thousand and. One, I think. He was so funny. At the time, you know, he had been on Saturday Night Live and he had done some small parts in in movies. But we would sit on that set blown away by how riotous he was. And then Andy did a lot of improvisations. We were just beginning to figure out a way to shoot these types of things where we did the script but also would improvise Mm -hmm. a lot. And that was very inspired by how Ben Stiller worked at the Ben Stiller show. And I remember looking at a cut of it and we all said, this is like the type of movie we wish Will Ferrell would make. Yeah. You know, we wanted him to be <laughs> the guy he became. Mm-hmm. So our little episode, we were like, Will Ferrell is the funniest guy ever. I, I hope we get a ton of movies from mm-hmm. Will yeah. before he had been given that opportunity. Yeah. Uh, because we knew that this was a very special mm-hmm. guy. So I, the fact that we were able to do Anchorman afterwards is a, is a great, yeah. uh, a great, uh, a great thing. Speaking of improvising on screen, I feel like the 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 idea of shouting lines off mm-hmm. camera at actors has been both attributed to you and to Adam McKay. Yeah. So do you want to settle that? Who who ca- who came up with that uh, concept? I I think of it as a Ben Stiller. Oh, okay, so because Ben was doing that <laughs> in ninety ninety one. That that was how he mm. worked. Yeah. And I certainly encouraged McKay to do it. I, he would have done it without me for mm-hmm. sure, yeah. because he came from Saturday Night Saturday Night Live and Second City. But I definitely made, made a point to tell Adam, you can get a lot of alternate material when you shoot a movie. Yeah. Do not think in this format mm-hmm. that you have to shoot the script. Yeah. And no one is better than Adam McKay at doing it. Yeah. I mean, for me having gotten a chance to work with Adam as a producer, there's nothing more fun than sitting in a chair watching Adam McKay mm-hmm. feed lines <laughs> to actors and actresses. There's nobody funnier. Is there any, is there one thing that he shouted out that you can remember that made it in a movie? The one that I always mentioned is there was a moment in Anchorman 2 where I believe Paul Rudd punches Ron Burgundy. Mm-hmm. And they were just trying to get reactions to this vicious punch. <laughs> and before every take, Adam, you know, would would tell him a new way to approach it. So, you know, it would be, okay, act like he hit you so hard that it put you back 
into kindergarten. <laughs> and I was like, now do one where he hits you so hard, you start speaking another language. <laughs> and it went on and on like that for, for a long time. And, you know, those are areas that I know as someone who does try to feed lions, I would never get to. Mm-hmm. Like the, the well is so deep mm-hmm. with McKay. Uh, Knocked Up was the first time you uh, directed your kids, yes. um, your two daughters. Is there anything that, that jumps out from, from those early times directing your kids? I, I wanted him there because I didn't want to meet other people's kids. I just, <laughs> and I always felt that in movies when there are children, they always seem like they're not the children of those people. You yeah. feel the distance, mm-hmm. the emotional distance. So uh, I knew my kids were interesting. And I also knew they had a dynamic where they would fight that was fun to watch. And if I just turned a couple of cameras on them, you would get it. You guys want to hear something neat? We're going to have a baby together. What? Yeah, baby. Well, you're not married. Aren't you supposed to be married to have a baby? You don't have to be. But they should be, because they love each other, and people who love each other get married and have babies. Mm-hmm. Do you love each other? Yes, they love each other, because that's what you do. When you love each other, you get married and have a baby. Where do babies come from? Where do you think they come from? Well, I think a stork, he um he drops it down, and, it, and then a hole goes in your body, and there's blood everywhere coming out of your head, and then you push your belly button, and then your butt falls off, and then you hold your butt, and you have to dig, and you find a little baby. <laughs> That's exactly right. I'm so glad we did it, because it is like having a home movie yeah. of them when they were kids, and then they just got better and better, so by the time we did This Is 40, you know, they were... You know, yeah. fully acting and improvising yeah. in the way that we do. And then Iris went on to yeah. to, to to work on our TV show Love on Netflix. Yeah, she's great on that. And and Maud is now on Euphoria. Yeah. How's that how's that been for you? Fantastic. It's uh, <laughs> I've seen two and a half episodes. I'm moving very slowly because I'm scared. But you know, she's amazing on the show mm-hmm. and you know, she's now doing uh, all this on her own and mm-hmm. is so talented yeah. and you know, we couldn't be more proud of her yeah um what did you learn working with uh, lena dunham on girls what did you learn from her it was a similar lesson that i learned from gary just a personal emotional courage in the writing mm-hmm. lena just goes as deep as you can go that's probably why i was attracted to working with her mm-hmm. because it felt like gary yeah and when I look back at the show and think about all the things she did and the different ways she exposed herself, it's really remarkable work. And I, I think she is not spoken of enough as someone who is insanely funny. Mm-hmm. She, she, and we had a great time. And one of the things I'm most proud of in my, in my career is that I got to go through that you know seven-year experience with Lena. And we got along fantastically the entire time. And there was nothing more fun than just reading her drafts. Yeah. You know, she was, you know, very prolific. And these shows are very hard to do. When we did the Larry Sanders show, Gary wouldn't go home for the weekend and write a draft. He would, you know, co-write drafts or, or tell people ideas, but he, he, he didn't do the thing that people like Lena and, and Pete Holmes and Paul Russ have done, which is I have an idea. I'm going to go write it. Here it is. Yeah. And that's a very special Gift. Mm-hmm. I see, you know, the, the Rami does that and, mm-hmm. and Aziz. Uh, 
it's and so 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 just to get to read it yeah. is fun you know yeah. lena going hey i, I wrote something i thought of something and then as a fan wow this is some incredible writing yeah uh, so we had, uh, I've had John Lovett on this podcast a couple mm-hmm. times from, uh, who used to work with Obama at the white yes. house. So we talked about when you came in to help write some jokes, yes. uh, for that, for Obama. So what do you, what do you remember from writing jokes for Obama? Well, I met John at, uh, I was touring the white house and we're walking through and suddenly John Lovett comes out of the president's office. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't met him before, and we're chatting. And he says that they're inside working on jokes for the correspondence dinner. And I'm thinking he's going to say, come on in. <laughs> You're a comedy writer. Come on in. And then he just didn't. And I was furious. <laughs> so then at the party after the correspondence dinner, I was just drunk, and I would assume he was, and I and I said, "You, you blocked me. You blocked me," and uh, and gave him a really hard time for not letting me in the room with the president. Then the next year, he called me up and said, "We're working on the speech. Do you do you want to help out?" Mm-hmm. And so he sent me the speech, and a lot of it was looking for subjects which hadn't uh, been developed enough, and just my general reaction to the speech. And there amazing writers who whoever's working on it the jokes are fantastic if you've ever seen obama's yeah correspondence no, unbelievable they're so funny but the writing's in- incredible yeah and we started talking about what ha- wasn't in the in the speech and I, I i say it was some trepidation but i definitely was a voice of we we, we should go much harder at trump yeah this you know the birtherism thing is mm. crazy and, and this I, was 2011 when he was maybe going to run against uh yes uh, when he was going to run uh, he, for that nomination yeah. and he was considering running and and i i said to john he's the worst guy in the world mm. we should really do some some, <laughs> some tough jokes about him and we wrote uh this one extended joke where he recaps an episode yeah. of the apprentice it's a classic and john said i don't think he'll do it because it's conceptual and you know he doesn't <laughs> mind doing these short pop jokes yeah but he's not going to do a whole routine yeah uh, and then he he called me and was shocked to yeah uh to say that he decided to do it hopefully he told him that that you wrote it maybe that helped i, I did get an autograph from uh from the president <laughs> afterwards uh, that says on it uh like thanks for the jokes you should consider going into comedy <laughs> uh, but the next year we had a joke that i really liked which was a very simple joke uh, where obama says a lot of people say to me you should spend more time with Republicans. You know, you should, uh, you know, you should uh, go get lunch, you know, with, with uh, Mitch McConnell. And I'm like, you get lunch with Mitch McConnell. <laughs> <laughs> I'm paraphrasing the yeah. joke. That, hold, that holds up. Joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, Was there anything that you wrote that he, that he wouldn't say? I'm sure. I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, you know, it was fun to do that. And, you know, you know, Frontline and other places have said, "Well, that was the moment that Trump decided mm-hmm. to run." But clearly, Trump was always trying to run, yeah. and, and and Trump himself has said that's not 
the moment he decided to run yeah. for president. Seth Meyers also shares some of the blame. Uh, I think that Seth Meyers' yeah. jokes were way harsher than yeah. the president's Probably. jokes. When you go back and look at what he said to Trump, it was really brutal. Yeah. Uh, but I also, I don't think that that's why he ran for president. No. He had been talking about it for decades, and uh, that's what helps me sleep at night. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Uh, so you've worked with just about everybody uh, funny in Hollywood. When you look back, is there a, a funniest person that you've ever gotten to work with that was funny just in person? Well, the funniest person when you were in the room with them was Chris Farley. Yeah. Nobody was funnier than Chris Farley by far mm-hmm. because he was just a fireball. Yeah. And he was going to go for it hard in almost every single situation Mm -hmm. it's hard to describe what that was that level of charisma and madness and hilarity but what was your experience working with when when did you i worked with him on a tom arnold special we we did this before he got very famous where he walked around a mall uh and the the point of the the bit was he was going to teach tom how to pick up women and so we had hidden cameras and he just walked up to strangers in the mall and was just talking to women. Mm-hmm. But it would be like he's whole, he's got a yogurt in his hand and there's a woman, you know, a hundred yards away and he would say, oh, hey, how you doing? And then he would just trip and fall on the yogurt, <laughs> like literally fall flat on this yeah. yogurt. So it's just all over his chest and his belly. And then he would keep talking to her as if it didn't happen. <laughs> hey, so what do you do? Any shopping? And it was just a whole afternoon or day of watching him walk up to strangers and then he was on the larry sanders show yeah as well and then i would go visit adam mm-hmm. and saturday night live and be around him mm-hmm. then i did uh, you know some punch up on black sheep mm-hmm. but he made us laugh more than anyone on a set there you know there are certain people and certain moments where people blow you away yeah. where you know you're witnessing the highest level mm-hmm. stuff you know seeing you know Seth and Catherine have some of those conversations during Knocked Up mm-hmm. or Leslie when, you know, we were doing the 40-Year-Old Virgin, the drunk driving sequence with her and Steve yeah. or Jane Lynch singing in Spanish. <laughs> you know, most of those moments with Will. There were moments with Sandler during Funny People. Mm-hmm. There's this moment where he's singing this song, Fuck George Simmons at the piano at the improv that he just improvised mm-hmm. that was really funny and haunting. So, But there's a thousand of those. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and then finally, we end every episode by asking, uh, what's the last piece of comedy that made you la- laugh really hard? And you can think of it as kind of like a recommendation for people. It could be a stand-up uh, you saw perform or uh, something on TV or a movie or just anything that, that comes think about, to mind. When I think about what makes me laugh out loud, like what, what do I actually mm-hmm. make yeah. noise and lose it over? Um, the last Sasha Baron Cohen yeah. series and Sasha's work in mm-hmm. general makes me scream and laugh yeah. and cringe in the best possible way. All his movies, everything he's done. Mm-hmm. I could go on YouTube and look at old <laughs> Ollie G's. I was just watching him, an old one where he interviewed David Beckham and uh, Victoria Beckham. <laughs> the whole family, we just decided to just <laughs> watch this old Ollie G interview. Extras was, is a show that made me laugh out loud mm-hmm. really hard. The David Bowie episode yeah. is pretty That's a great incredible. Um, yeah, I, I'm trying to think like things that made me scream. You mm-hmm. know, there's, there's moments that this is the end. Yeah. Seven oh Evans God. movie that... I love that movie. That, that are genuinely riotous. And... 
I'm trying to think of somebody else. Uh, Maria Bamford. Anything Maria Bamford does. Yeah, I would say. Uh, yeah, when I at the Largo show, I was mm-hmm. crying, laughing at the um, Gary Gullman's Chipotle bit. Yes, that, that really got me. Oh my gosh, it's so funny. <laughs> so I don't. I don't know if that's. I, I don't know if that's an old bit or a new bit, but I hope it's on the next uh, thing that he puts out, so people can can see that. Yeah, there's so many people who are so great right now. Yeah, it re- it really is an amazing time. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much to Judd Apatow for inviting us into his office to record this episode. It's Gary Shandling's book is available for pre-order right now at the link in the description for this episode and will be in stores on Tuesday, November 12th. And Staten Island is scheduled to hit theaters sometime next year. If you enjoy this show, please tell your friends and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at thedailybeast.com. And please follow at Last Laugh Pod on Instagram. The Last Laugh is distributed by Himalaya Media for The Daily Beast. It is produced by Jason Smith and Scott Porch for Starburns Audio and edited by Mackenzie Mazel. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, the Himalaya app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.